This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. My name is Rohini Chatterjee and I am a PhD candidate in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I am absolutely delighted to have Marcus be with us um, today at NBN. Dr. B is Assistant Professor of African American Studies in English at Northwestern University and is the author of Black Trans Feminism, published by Duke University Press. Um, today we'll be in conversation about their most recent book, Title System Failure, Essays on Blackness and Cisgender, published by Duke University Press this year as well. Um, welcome to the New Books um, Network. Marcus. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted, absolutely delighted to be here, to be in conversation. I'm so humble for the invitation as well. So thank you. I, as I've told you before, your your book is excellent and and field defining in many ways, and I'm and I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you today. Um, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual and affective journey and how it has helped you um, bring system failure to us? I can try. Yes. Yeah. So I'll start with the the intellectual, uh, and maybe I'll probably shuttle back to it after thinking affectively, but intellectually. I mean, of course, I am a scholar of Black studies and trans studies, feminist theory, queer theory, all these things. Uh, and the reason why I was drawn to these things, these fields, these disciplines uh, were because for me, they raised questions of non-normativity uh, and excess and fracture, all these ways of exceeding the bounds of the normative, all these ways that we are circumscribed or hemmed in, I was incredibly drawn to the ways that I could intellectually exceed those things uh, as a kind of practice of liberation. Uh, So that was always incredibly interesting to me. And I think that's one of the grounding and foundational modes of how I move through my writing intellectually. Uh, I think also, though, um, to go back a little bit farther, uh, I've long been interested in simply thinking deeply. Uh, So that all started, I mean, it started as a child uh, in 
a kind of a childish way, but I think it really kind of came to a head when I was in undergrad. So I, I went into undergrad as a biology major of all things. And I remember having a biology class in a chemistry lab and absolutely despising all of that. And part of it was because I was not permitted to think. Uh, it was very much a regurgitation of knowledge received. And I was really, and have long been, and am still interested in thinking and in being curious. And I wasn't able to do that in the way that I wanted to when I was a biology major. But also my first year of undergrad, I I had to take some general education requirements. And one of the classes I took was a philosophy class, an intro to philosophy class. And that class literally, absolutely literally changed my life. It led me to it led me to a sense of as well as a passion for thinking and exploring thoughts rigorously, exploring ideas and questions, thinking deeply about these massive big questions. I remember when I was in undergrad, I began to really, really despise small talk because it so very much disallowed me from asking and entertaining those big questions. I wanted big talk when I was in undergrad. So all that kind of intellectually led me to this series of insistences on asking, continuing to ask large questions uh, and thinking deeply about things that so many others thought was already already wrapped up. Uh, and I wanted to actually burrow into those things still. So that's the kind of intellectual framework that kind of got me to the system failure book. Uh, the affective journey that I took to, to system failure, actually, I talk about a little bit in the book, um, but that takes a number of different inflections. But one of them is how my love of cartoons actually really led me to that. So in the book, as well as elsewhere, I talk about my love for cartoons, for watching TV. I grew up in a TV family. We had a TV in almost every room. Uh, so I live on TV. I tell folks very often, I tell my partners, par my partner this all the time, that I was raised by TV in many ways, and cartoons were a foundation for that. And namely, there were a few cartoons that kind of set the seeds for what I try to talk about in System Failure. And I talk about these in the book. And those cartoons are Dragon Ball Z and namely the, the character Frieza, who I have so much love for and so much gratitude to War for giving me a glimpse of other ways to, to inhabit space and to think about things and to feel about oneself and to conceptualize. Uh, so there's Dragon Ball Z, there's also the Powerpuff Girls, uh, and not necessarily the titular character, but more so the villain that they've named him, was also another glimpse into other modes of, of thinking and being about myself uh, with respect to gender or with disrespect to gender. And then the third cartoon, uh, which I came to much more recently, uh, is Steven Universe and the character in there named Stevani. Uh, all those things really brought me to system failure as a thing that I wanted to sit with, think through, and insist upon as a modality of inhabiting and exhabiting the world in certain kinds of gendered ways. Um, so I, I moved through all those things intellectually and affectively to get to what system failure has become. 
That's that's fascinating. Um, in the first chapter of your book, Heart of Cisness, you write, and I quote, um, cisgender, gender alignment will not save us, is not innocent, is not safe. Um, would you like to tell us what makes cisness unsafe and, and cannot protect us, even though we are taught to think otherwise about it? Um, could you expand on this for our audience? Yes. So, okay. So, in my understanding of cisgender, of cisness, by definition, it must it must expunge any any sort of gender variance and mutability from it in order to maintain itself. By definition, cisgender is for me the uh, expulsion of gender variance and mutability um, in order to define itself. It's defined by the making impossible other kinds of gender expression, gender modes of life, etc. It's 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 a regime to me. It's very much a regime uh, that disallows so much, that circumscribes so much. Also, in addition to that, to me, it's a fabrication, which is not to say that it's fake or not real, um, but that it's painstakingly built up. It's not simply that we are cisgender or that we are any particular gender itself, but that cisgender in particular is a fabrication that obscures itself as a fabrication. So I want to very much think about the ways that cisgender is not simply this innocent i was born this way which is a discourse that was incredibly and still kind of is incredibly popular that i actually have a whole bunch of qualms with Uh, it's not that one is born a particular gendered way but one is painstakingly disciplined to be certain kinds of genders and one is painstakingly disciplined to be cisgender to align with gender normativity and in that sense it's a violence Uh, it violates all these other movements and feelings and thoughts and ideas uh, about oneself that that could have been that could have made their way onto the scene but cisgender's regime it disallowed those things from from happening and i think also if we if we are seeking a kind of uh liberation uh, i don't think that we can hold on to cisgender in its rigidity because it necessitates the circumscription of so much and disallows the possibility of so much. Indeed, the possibility of anything else, cisgender, as I said, by definition, is predicated on the making impossible of other kinds of gendered expressions being uh, valid ways of life. So all of that makes to me gender or cisgender not safe uh, and not innocent because it is painstakingly built up, not simply transparent in there. Uh, and it also necessarily needs to violate other forms of gendered life or ungendered or non-gendered life in order to tout itself as natural. So for all those reasons, I think cisgender is neither safe nor innocent nor will save us. Absolutely. Um, that's that's so powerfully put. Um, at the heart of your book is the contention that cisgender is fundamentally anti-Black, and hence Blackness troubles cisgender identity. Um, I know this is a big question, but would you like to tell us a, a little bit about this? Yeah, I can, I can, I will emphasize a little bit about it. So yeah, this is a it's a contentious claim, especially outside of the discourses and fields that I find myself trafficking in. Um, but so the the impetus of the book, uh, and I and I write about this a little bit in the book. Uh, but where the book came from was a refrain I continue to hear either on Twitter or in academic spaces or even in articles sometimes or in books that black people cannot be cisgender and. 
I knew the people that they, the scholars, the thinkers that folks were saying that were drawing on. And it's not that I disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. But I think I also don't agree with that. I mean, it's really nebulous space between the two, which is kind of an impossible space to be in. Because for me, I really deeply, desperately need more than simply that. It feels like a it feels like a hot thing to say. It feels really cute to say that. But for me, I need so, so much more than simply saying that. I need to know where you're getting this from, why you're thinking this, in what ways are you reading and interpreting and evaluating the uh, the logics and discourses and histories that uh, you are ostensibly drawing on. I need it so, so much more than that. So for me, the very book itself, System Failure, was me saying more about that because I could see where people were coming from and I needed to try to think more deeply and rigorously about that. So to the the, the question of cisgender being fundamentally anti-Black, I'll try to... I'll try to, to characterize this in a way that hopefully makes sense to, to listeners. So for me, cisgender is predicated on alignment and rigidity. It's predicated on this sense of there being the script or this, um, this normative criteria for being properly gendered, for being naturally gendered, and it disallows getting outside of that script, uh, hence its rigidity. Uh, and that is definitional of cisgender. We might even say that to be cisgender is not to be a particular kind of gender, but to align with the normative scripts that say that gender is such and such. Uh, also, so if we have that understanding of cisgender, when we think about blackness or when I'm thinking about blackness, at least in the way that I'm defining it, it is to be misaligned. Uh, blackness is not, for me at least, and this is also a contentious claim, but blackness for me is not a particular racial category, but in fact, the eruption of the logics of racialization. That is how I'm understanding blackness, which is then to say that it is to misalign, that it is uh, what the scholar friend Moten calls paraontological. And to put that a little bit simply, uh, is that um, blackness then is the name for the ways that one does not fit, uh, that one cannot fit within the the logics that are that are or within the grammar that exists. Uh, so if I'm understanding blackness in that way, this kind of misalignment, that then means it is a bit antagonistic to cisgender, that if blackness is to misalign and cisgender is to uh, impose and force a kind of alignment, then cisgender and blackness do not uh, cannot meet in any substantive way. I think also uh, in the sense of cisgender being fundamentally anti-Black, uh, we can think of, and this is these are the people who, the folks who say that Black people can't be cisgender are drawing on people like Hortense Spillers, namely Hortense Spillers, uh, who in her classic, classic essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, which came out in 1987, which is seemingly the only essay that people read by Hortense Spillers, even though she has a very deep intellectual and academic catalog that I would very much love for more people to, to talk about. Nevertheless, uh, when she is writing in that essay about um, Blackness being ungendered, uh, I think people are drawing on that uh, to make the claim that Black people cannot be uh, cisgender, precisely because Blackness's ungendering means that that gender itself is predicated on the symbolic integrity of whiteness. And so if blackness is a departure from that, then there is an ungendering happening. There is a improper gender happening there. 
I think also what folks are drawing on, there is a um, a line in something that Fred Moten has written in which he talks about the the transgendering and regendering of blackness, uh, which is simply to say that blackness is improperly gendered and thus opens itself up to an excess of various ways to do and undo and rethink and unthink gender. And I think also the last thing I'll say on this front is that uh, folks are often drawing on the ways that coloniality has instantiated the gender binary and and, and predicated on uh, the imaging of the human as uh, figuratively white. So if coloniality has instantiated the, ge the gender binary and has concocted the human as symbolically and literally white. Uh, and if whiteness then is constitutive of humanness, blackness then with the, the gender binary that inheres in being human, blackness then is unable to hold cisgender. Cisgender is unable to hold blackness and thus expunges blackness from its province in order to maintain itself. And thus on those grounds, cisgender is fundamentally anti-black. That's just a, a sliver of the things that I need people to say more when they talk about black people being uh, not being able to be cisgender. That's what I want to draw out of people, all of these different ways that cisgender is predicated on alignment, that blackness is to be misaligned, that blackness is ungendered, uh, and that there is a way that that the gender binary is uh, antagonistic to blackness or blackness is antagonistic to the gender binary and thus uh, cisgender. That's that's incredibly powerful. And I'll probably say that about every question you answer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there is a neologism in the book that you propose, um, Visitudes, um, and the cis um, is spelled as C-I-S, um, and you argue that it moves away from the oppressive demands of cisness and signals a potentiality that extends beyond cis and, and troubles and complicates gendered personhood. Um, could you talk a little bit about your conceptualization of Visitudes and where it can take us in terms of um, developing an imagination that holds possibilities of care, community, um, subversion, in spite of gender? Yes. So I got really excited when I came up with that because that literally came to me as I was writing. Uh, so And I thought it was super cool. So vicissitudes and the, the CIS, the cis of the, of the word is italicized in the book. So of course we know the the typical definition of vicissitudes, this kind of a, the I think the Oxford English Dictionary defines it as like the the fact of change or mutation taking place in a particular thing or within a a certain sphere. Huh? So, if that's the understanding of vicissitudes, I want to bring with that a sense of those who think that they are or have to be cis or cisgender. I want to invite those people to think about the ways that they can that they can mutate within that sphere that they've been said that they have to have because sometimes maybe even oftentimes uh, folks who understand themselves maybe as cisgender at least for now uh, think that they have no choice in it but I think in fact you do have choice uh, in it I think you do which is not to say which is not to get all embedded in the discourse whether you can choose to be trans or gay or anything like that that is actually to me a boring conversation if I'm being honest that's not what I'm suggesting here what I'm suggesting or what I'm trying to suggest is a way that cisgender be, being cis necessitates not simply a kind of 
physiognomy or morphology, but is in fact so much more than that. It's about behaviors and ideologies and modes of relating and ethics, all these things that go into quote unquote being cis. And I want to invite folks to be vicissitudinally, vicissitudinally related to or unrelated to those other things. How can we in fact rebuke the ethics and behaviors and relationalities that are that predicate cisness. Uh, so how can we in fact think about the ways that perhaps one has a certain body that would be defined as cis um, because they haven't undergone certain kinds of medical or surgical interventions or uh, uh, physical interventions or anything like that, though, for me, I, I want to press on that as well. But nevertheless, if someone understands themselves as cis by virtue of not having undergone those kinds of things that would, that they think might make them quote unquote trans, what are the possibilities still um, in thinking about the way that you can, as I say in the book, be a bad cis subject? How can you in fact not do cisness correctly? How can you be wrong in the assistance that you exude? Which is to say, how can you in fact do a kind of trans work? How can you uptake trans as an analytic, as a modality or a posture or disposition of gender insurrection? How can you in fact do that even in the same body that you have or, or that you are said to have that is then defined as cis? So vicissitudes is an invitation for folks who believe themselves to be cis and yet it doesn't let them off the hook of doing radical insurrectionary trans work, trans liberatory work. So how can you in fact do various things or understand yourself in various ways or relate to people or ideas in ways that rebuke the tenets of cisness? That's what I want to try to have the language of vicissitudes do. And that I think would promote a kind of care or kind of expansiveness uh, in thinking about the ways that you that you can relate to other people in the way that you can relate to yourself as well, because also cisness, especially cis masculinity, uh, has an understanding of itself that disallows certain kinds of feelings and relationships with other people. So how can we in fact not do those things correctly and promote a different sense of care, a different sense of relationality, and also subvert gender and undermine gender, vitiate gender even, even when we are not the subjects presumed to do that vitiation? How can we, in fact, also place demand on people who understand themselves as cis to do trans work? That's what I want the term to do. Perfect. Um, you also write very powerfully about the non-binariness of blackness. Um, you write, and I quote, this language of the they bears a shift of texture when arising from, as it were, blackness. Um, for the word to emerge from black environs renders it no more pronoun, but supplementarily um, illuminative of a path toward a way of life between available language and the space of the unthought, or at least unspoken, um, unquote. Could you tell us what the non-binariness of blackness does to language um, and its association with gendered personhood. Oh yeah, of course. So, so the the so I grew up in in Philadelphia around a whole bunch of black folks, and the the essay in the in System Failure um, that I talk most explicitly about this. Uh, uses this phrase that I often heard um, growing up. And that phrase is, hiya mama in them. And that to me was a phrase that was always peculiar because so often, so, so often, uh, 
they were the people that I that were using that phrase were talking about a single person. So it was it was a how your mama and them. It was also how they been like these uses of the they in ways that reference only a single person, not multiple people. So that then allowed for me to think about the possibilities of a certain kind of non-binaryness that's endemic to Black milieus, Black communities, Black coalitions. And this is not to say that that Black people are more non-binary or that there are more Black non-binary people or that Black people are are more accepting of non-binaryness. That's not really what I'm saying. Uh, For me, what I'm trying to, to suggest is that the... The discursive and linguistic registers that emerge from particular kinds of Black communities that I found myself in open themselves up to a way of syntactically, at least, and also I think relationally, loosening gender. How can we, in fact, think about a singular person without, in fact, gendering them from the outset? And that, to me, is a kind of non-binariness insofar as the gender binary is pervasive and is the oftentimes the only way that we might be able to refer to people, the very language that we have is one that is predicated on the gender binary. So for folks, for someone like my grandmother to say hi, your mama and them, or how they've been when they're talking about a single person is a way to, to loosen and de-emphasize gender, at least in that particular moment. And that opens up the possibility that we have a different relationship to the person to whom we're referring, or how can we, in fact, think about this person, not immediately in the first instance as a gendered subject, but as someone who is in relation to someone else, because I'm talking to someone about someone else and I'm using they, how can I in fact think about that relation being the primary thing that I think about with respect to this person rather than gender? So that's how I want to think about the non-binariness of Blackness as a loosening of gender syntactically, grammatically, which then opens up a capacity for thinking about people on different terrain that are not simply or even primarily gendered. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Absolutely. I love the idea of not love it, but um, I think it's really a complex that you propose the idea that gender, that language is uh, predicated on um, the gender binary and, and what that reveals about uh, language itself in many ways. Um, 
Yeah, you you also trouble confessions and confessional narratives um, and assert that confessions are expected of marginalized bodies in various overt and covert ways. Um, and it is sometimes figured as a necessity to be considered worthy of consideration. Um, could you talk a little bit about confessions and what you call dishonest truthfulness and what it reveals about gender and cisness? So the confession... And I am thinking alongside the philosopher slash historian, um, Michel Foucault. And the confession is, it's not simply to be in a confessional booth. It's not simply uh, affixed to that theological context, though it is it emerges from that in uh, certain kinds of ways. But if the confession is about a subject demonstrating a truthfulness about themselves to an external person or an external entity that then validates the truthfulness and maybe absolves them of something. The confession is a way that that gender and gender non-normativity or even cisgender, gender alignment, uh, the, those things are manifested via a confession. So what I mean by that is simply that to to move through the world and to interact with people who demand necessarily for you to show up on the terms of gender is to then be forced to demand it to confess your gender in legible ways that they then affirm, that they then use to interact with you in certain kinds of ways. So for example, I I was watching a lecture by Judith Butler given some time ago. And Butler was talking about a moment in which they were in a hotel room and one of the hotel workers had to enter into Butler's room to service the mini bar in some kind of way. And so Butler, being Judith Butler, opens the door and then the, um, the hotel worker stuttered in terms of Mr. Madam, Mr. Madam. And then Butler responds, do you really need to know my gender in order to enter into the room? And that to me is an incredible example of the ways that the very social terrain, social interaction is stalled if one does not know someone else's gender, if one cannot pin down and make legible and intelligible on the criteria of cisgender normativity of the gender binary, that that interaction is stalled until that quote unquote problem can be resolved. So for me, I am thinking about the confession as something that that we are forced to do, compelled to do in order to move through interactions seamlessly and seamlessly on the terms of, of gender normativity. So I want to, in fact, think about the ways that that we refuse confession, the ways that we do not choose to confess, especially because the truthfulness, the veracity of one's confession is predicated on a criteria that determines what is possible to be true, what can be true and what cannot be true. If one does not have, if the terrain does not cultivate the conditions for for certain kinds of options, certain kinds of responses, then it's sometimes impossible for someone to say a true word about themselves. So, so say, for example, I'm in an interaction where someone does not even acknowledge the legitimacy of something like non-binariness, and I tell that person that I'm non-binary or I understand myself through non-binariness, that is not even a response, a valid response to have. It's not even true or false, but it's not even on the options to, to choose from in order to respond. So the confession, I'm being forced to confess something that 
I want to maybe say about myself, even though we can also think about the coerciveness of, of, of the confession, but even if I want to say something that I think is true about myself, there are times when that's not even an option to choose from. And that to me is a profound violence, a profound a priori ontological fundamental violence that I want to try to think much more differently about. How can we in fact encounter people on ground that do not force them to or coerce them to confess anything about themselves before we encounter them? How can we in fact open up space for someone to reveal or not reveal themselves to us that will then uh, impact how we move in relation to one another rather than forcing them to operate on gender terms in order to interact with them? How can we, in fact, predicate the interaction on an openness to not even knowing who might show up to this interaction? So, yeah, I want to I try to think about the confession or not think about the confession via those ways. Absolutely. It, it made me think about how refusal can be resistance and it can also really strike at the heart of the entitlement this, that is associated and expressed through gender, um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I was I was nodding in agreement throughout. Um, you you write, and I quote, and your and your book is endlessly endlessly quotable. Um, uh, if if being human insists that one must be man or woman, political androgyny, which is to say, in my language, system failure, the enactment of a failed system, uh, undoes what the human is and works towards creating something new in its wake. Um, it claims the monstrosity of the deviant and dehumanized as the place from which another gendered mode, another non and ungendered mode of life begins, unquote. Could you talk a little bit about this newness and the socio-cultural or, or political possibilities um, it offers? For sure. So, yeah, so the human, uh, to be a human is to be necessarily man or woman there is no at least in the logics of of western modernity um in the logics of of that in order to be human one must be either man or woman or else one falls outside of humanness so the language of political androgyny which i get from a colleague of mine uh, and the language i try to use for that is system failure um to to enact that undoes the very ligaments of humanity, namely the gender binary. So if one is uh, failing the system or enacting the failure of the system, C-I-S-T-E-M, then that means that one is failing to be a human. And that to me is not lamentable. Uh, There's so much, so much discourse out there about the ravages of dehumanization. And that's, that's not untrue. Um, But for me, to be made into a human is also a violence as well. So I I want to explore the possibilities of not having to be a human, which has a whole archive of all these things that that do harm to people. That to be made into a human is also to to harm all the other possibilities that we might have been were not for having to be this kind of entity, which is which is which needs to be and have all these other things uh, that also do do violence. So for me, I want to think about, well, what happens if we are not human? What happens if we do not have to be, do not have to be humans? I, I want to, I want to think about the possibilities that in here in that, um, that in here in the, the 
ways that we might not be or don't feel that we have to be gendered in any particular kind of way or at all. So that then might open up a whole bunch of other things for us to be precisely because the human disallows so much. If we are no longer human, that then opens up and allows and permits so much else. And I want to I want to explore those things because in those things might be the possibility of some other kind of radically beautiful unknown possibility for us. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um I I love um the the chapter which is um titled as as a forwarded email but with no subject and it's written as a series of emails um and I and I found it absolutely fascinating and it also made me curious about your writing process and your and your relationship with methods and and could you tell us a little bit about how how that process and and the writing of that chapter and thinking about the chapter um helped you bring into being system failure absolutely so that chapter in particular came about from I think I, I I believe I quote a text conversation I was having with a friend in that uh, in that e- that exchange that chapter and that's actually the text conversation that spawned that entire that entire chapter that entire essay because for me I I was so I was attempting to do something in the book that wasn't simply another academic monograph. So that's why I chose the general genre of auto theory, uh, thinking about the the self, the subject in relation to theoretical things that I was learning via uh, Black studies and trans studies and feminist theory. Um, but that text conversation I was having with that friend was one that that made necessary and urgent for me to think about different ways of articulating these ideas. Uh, and I'll say too that I I wrote I wrote this book in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, so the book really kind of gained steam. I was writing it and I kind of was losing steam while I was writing it. And then I went to an academic conference. Uh, and during that conference, I went to a panel uh, that was a celebration of the uh, 25th anniversary, I believe, of Susan Stryker's essay, My Words to Victor Frankenstein. And like after that panel, I went up to Susan and I gave her a hug, a very long hug that did not feel at all uncomfortable, but that felt incredibly caring and loving. And then we chatted for a little bit and then she said, we should chat some more. Uh, I have this meeting uh, with Duke University Press. And but after that, I don't have anything to do. So I said, OK, cool, let's chat. I was going to do another panel. But when Susan Stryker says, let's talk, you talk to Susan Stryker. So I I'm sitting in the lobby. Susan Stryker comes out and then we're chatting, we're talking. And the meeting she went to uh, was actually the series for the series that the book came out with because we were talking and we're just talking about a whole bunch of stuff. We talked for maybe an hour and a half just in there in the middle of this conference talking about a whole bunch of stuff about trans studies and its history and the things that she's thinking about and working on, how I'm thinking about things. And that conversation was one that had so much care in it, so much love and understanding. Like she listened so deeply to me. And and that 
energized me. I remember the conference ended uh, a day later and me and a whole bunch of other people at the conference, uh, our flight got delayed. And so we were put on this massive, massive red eye. And even though I should have been sleeping, I'm up on the plane writing this this book. And like that, that, that conversation gave me a sense of urgency and also gave me a sense of passion as well. And for me, that's how the writing emerged in the way that it did because of that conversation with Susan, which is, I think to say, my proximity to transness, my proximity to a kind of trans care, as Hill Malatino might say, who I know has been on the show before. Um, so that that really ignited this kind of this this sense of wanting to to move through these ideas in a in a more rigorous and sustained and intentional way. And so the writing of that chapter uh, was was one that I don't know, it it was an experiment of sorts. Uh, it was an experiment into thinking about what might what might a trans kind of writing look like? What might a non-binary kind of writing look like? How might we think about form in a different kind of way, especially noting that gender itself is a kind of imposed form? So how then might I think about exceeding or refusing the very form that is expected of me via gender, as well as via the genre, which is etymologically linked to gender of this, this essay, this chapter, this book? Uh, so I wanted to really try to think about what are some of the ways that I can I can think differently about writing? And also, like in the in the book, I told the press very explicitly. I don't want just like typical paragraph indentation. I want to kind of break the paragraphs up. Uh, I want to do things differently with the quotations. So with all the quotations, instead of quotation marks around them, I made them italicized. So all these small tinkerings with form, just to try to open things up just a little bit more. Because in the writing and in Tinkering with the, the the writing style, the grammar, the syntax that allowed me also to tinker with the very ideas that I was bringing to to this. I did not feel hemmed in by certain kinds of constraints that uh, that allowed me then to write this in a different kind of way, or at least to approach the writing in a different kind of way. So, and also I'll say the last thing I'll say is I I write in the dark a lot, uh, which is super. Strange, I know, but I write in the dark a lot because I want to be just ensconced in the thing that I'm writing. I didn't want any anything else outside of that. I didn't want any kind of uh, external impositions onto me. So I didn't want any external stimuli. So I wrote this book largely, as well as my last book, largely in the dark. Uh, so that's also, I guess, another thing about the writing as well. That's a little bit, or not a little bit, a lot idiosyncratic. I'm, I'm so glad I asked you this question because this is beautifully put. Um, it'll be also interesting to to revisit that chapter, um, taking into account your writing process and, and, and how that um, helped the chapter um, to get written. Very interesting. Um, in the chapter of the coalition or gender abolition, you you write about radical non-exclusivity and not just radical inclusivity. Um, could you talk a little bit about what radical non-exclusivity is and, and how it can help sustain coalitions of gender abolition? Yes, yes, I can. So, so I've been saying that for a few years now. And so I've been saying that, that I... Because also the language, the language of inclusion, uh, and especially things like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are so, yeah, just 
icky to me. I'll say icky. And I I wanted to think about something else because also like that language is predicated on the sense that one has the has the keys to then open up the doors to include other people who are outside of that. That's incredibly presumptuous of me or of people who say that. So I wanted to think about uh, radical non-exclusivity because I wanted to think about how we might not be those those gatekeepers, which is to me the the more innocuous way of saying police. Uh, and for me, if I'm deeply, deeply committed to abolition, uh, which is to say the eradication, of, among other things, to say the eradication of policing and carcerality. I would never want to even be a gatekeeper because that is the work of the police. So how can we think about non-exclusivity as an ethics? But then also, literally about a week ago, I was in the car listening to a a talk that Fred Moten was giving. I listened to Fred Moten talk a lot because I just love listening to him talk. And he said the same thing. He said that he's less interested in inclusivity and more interested in non-exclusivity. So I'm like, I thought I was so original and all that, but Fred has already said it. Fred has already said it. So I did I did think about that in the language before uh, hearing it from Fred or anyone else. But I do want to say that it's not... And nothing ever is my own language. That's an impossibility. Um, but I, I do want to flag that. But all this to say that that non-exclusivity does not presume that one has the criteria and then the authority to include people uh, into a particular sphere. Uh, it, it does not presume that it can do that or that anyone can or should do that uh, as the language of inclusivity does. And I think also... If that's the case, and if it's the case that gatekeeping or presuming that one has the criteria for and thus uh, ability to authorize entry into a, a particular sphere, that to me is the work of, of of law, of police, of enforcement, and abolition is very decidedly antagonistic to those things. So if we are to eradicate the police and carcerality and policing as a modality of relating or not relating to other people, then to me that also necessitates a kind of gender abolition uh, that is non-exclusive, that does not presume that it can gatekeep anything, that there are even gates to be kept. So all that is to say that I, I want the language of non-exclusivity to try to inflect that. This is absolutely fascinating, and I and I don't want our conversation to end. But I realize we're at the end of um, this episode. But before we part for the time being, would you like to tell us um, what you're currently working on? Yeah, so I'm always writing things. And right now I've taken on too ambitious of a project, but I kind of already have committed in my mind to it. So what I'm working on tentatively right now is actually a three-volume uh, series of, of texts that are inspired by um, something that the Black feminist abolitionist Miriam Kaba said. Uh, and so she's talking in, an, in a conversation, in an interview about abolition. And one of the things she says is that we need a jailbreak of the imagination. And that was so cool and interesting and necessary and uh, invigorating to me. I started to think about the language of jailbreaking as a way to to move through thinking about 
the big question that I talked about in the in the beginning. So for me, I am working on a three volume set of texts that are thinking about jail, jailbreaking with respect to uh, the big identity categories, race, gender, and class. How might we think about what abolition, what jailbreaking um, might provide in a different kind of language with respect to thinking about the, the ways that race, gender, and class circulate and might be, uh, might be redirected, misdirected, undirected from circulating with respect to, to abolition. So I'm working on that right now, and as well as a whole bunch of other things that I still need to write that deadlines have already passed for. So I'm working on those things too, but my primary project uh, is the three volumes set on jailbreaking with respect to race, gender, and class. Sounds like the most important um, project and I um, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that and and I know I'll I'll also keep following your scholarship very closely um, this book is is a gift to this world Marcus and I'm and I'm so glad that we got to be in conversation about it um, today me too um, thank you so so much I'm so appreciative and honored uh, for for this conversation thank you so so much I feel invigorated and humbled so thank you thank you <laughs>